This is Critical Transit, episode 51.2, or 51B, or 51X, or whatever you want to call a follow-up episode. My name is Jeremy Mendelson, and I'm the host of Critical Transit, and happy to have you along here. I did an episode uh, about maybe a month ago on fare-free transit, and why I think cities and towns all over should get rid of the fare box and fair inspection systems and everything, and just let everyone ride. Um, And I made my case. Uh, If you haven't heard that, I encourage you to go and listen to that. It's episode 51. And uh, I got an email from Eli Damon, who I know through Transportation Advocacy Circles, a longtime advocate uh, for bicycle rights, safe bicycling, and public transportation access and good service in western Massachusetts. And so I thought... uh, would have him on because he made a number of excellent points in his email. Uh, I don't think there was anything we disagreed with, but uh, I think he clarified a number of things and added some perspective, especially on the issue of paratransit and service for people with disabilities that uh, I hadn't touched on. So, so here it is. So today on the show, we have a special guest, Eli Damon, uh, a transportation advocate extraordinaire in Western Massachusetts. And um, Eli wrote a great email. I wanted to have you on uh, to talk about fare-free transit as a, as a follow-up here and a little bit about paratransit as well. Um, so, hi. Good morning, Eli. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Jeremy. Glad to talk to you. Cool. So, um, you, I've actually been wanting to have you on for, for quite a while, and uh, I'll have to have you back on some other time to talk about uh, bicycling, because you, uh, you're very active in uh, fighting for safety and bicyclist rights in uh in that part of the world. Uh, but you wrote a great email here about uh, fare-free transit, and you, uh, you agree with me that uh, we should have fare-free transit, which is, which is very good. Um, I'm, I'm happy to hear that. Uh, but you had, you had a number of excellent points, so I wanted to have you on the show. Um, and you talked about um, a number of things uh, related to uh, fare-free transit, um, one of those being, I guess, uh, I wanted to um, start here with the... Um, the I, I mentioned a little bit about a proof of payment system where um, instead of a traditional fare box where you pay the, the driver at the front of the bus, um, proof of payment system is where you pay at the station or at a convenience store or um, in some other way and you just carry a receipt and there are occasional random inspections. And so you, you raise the possibility of discrimination with regard to who's randomly checked. Um, which is something that I uh, have had a lot of concern about. Um, I this is this is one of the one of the issues, right? You know who who does the inspections, and uh, you know, and if even if uh, you have, you know, I mean, I don't know how do you have a super impartial person, but I mean, does do, do people get citations or 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 a warning, or do they, uh, you know, and then do these people wind up in the criminal justice system, and how does how does that work? I thought that was a an excellent point, and if you want to elaborate on that a little bit, yeah, thanks. I I don't have any personal experience or or knowledge with any of the with the, the kind of system, but I was just curious how how it would work. And and so you um, you're pretty active in Western Mass, as I, as I mentioned, um, the Pioneer Valley Transit Authority is your uh, your local bus service, and um, this is for people who don't know. It's uh, in uh, the kind of it's a big rural area, 
but it also encompasses a couple of cities, um, Springfield, an old, old uh, industrial town that's uh, not doing so well. And uh, then you have Northampton and Amherst, big college towns, and a couple of other cities like Chicopee and Holyoke. Um, and it's a, it's a complex system there. Um, and they had a, a debate a while ago because in, um, in the Amherst area, they have a number of routes that are fare free and have always been fare free, as far as I know, um, because from the sense that uh, they charge students a fee in their tuition bill every semester, and that goes to cover the cost of transit, and they have such a small percentage of people using the system who are not students that they don't even bother charging a fare at all, and they just say, well, let's just let everybody on. Um, but they recently instituted a fare. They went to a proof of payment system, although I don't think they actually do any inspections. Maybe that's that's changed. Um, but when they went to that proof of payment system, one of the arguments for that, the big arguments for that, I, I brought, I mentioned in the in the show, although I don't think I referenced PBTA specifically. But one of the arguments, as you noted, was that they the cost of paratransit was a big argument, and I wanted to dig into that a little bit, um, and maybe in a little bit we can talk about uh, you know a little bit more about paratransit. Um, but I wanted to hear your your thoughts on on that and uh, and why you argued against that change. Yeah, so I I was actually involved in you know in that process uh, between 2000 2006. I was served on the uh, Amherst the town of Amherst public transportation and bicycle committee, uh, and so we argued about about this. This idea, and yeah, that was the original motivation. Is yeah, we have a fare-free system, but the Americans with Disability Act uh, requires that with any public bus service, you have to provide paratransit, and you can only charge a certain multiple, a, a, a multiple of the regular bus fare for a paratransit ride. I think it's like twice or three times the, the regular bus fare. So because it's a fare, because there's no regular bus fare, that means you can't charge for paratransit. Um, and so, you know, and I said, well, the paratransit is really expensive and we want to be able to charge for it. So we have to charge, we have to charge a, a fare for the regular buses. And, but we, we like the fare-free system, so maybe we'll just sort of pretend to charge for the regular buses, but not really not really actually check whether anyone's paying or not. It kind of sounds like you're using uh, you're using the paratransit as almost like a pawn here. You know, you're you're sort of um, it's like you're you're trying to charge for for one thing, and and you know people people don't use paratransit just because they because they want to, right? I mean, let's maybe let's maybe we should back up here and, and talk about what paratransit is and and how it works. Is you you have some experience with that? Yeah, I do. I I should probably give you some background about my own kind of mobility uh, before I, before I talk about that. Um, I so I'm I have a hereditary uh, vision problem, um, and so and the main you know that's caused kind of mobility problems for me for for most of my life, um, and in particular I'm not able to drive a car so. So for a long time, I re- kind of relied on walking and, and bus and, and bike and begging rides from people with cars. And I, I figured out 
something that works a lot better now, but, but, you know, back a while ago, I, I had a real problem, you know, and I wasn't able to do all the things that, that I needed to do, uh, because of, because of mobility. Um, and so, yeah. And so there, there was one time where I, you know, or there were a few times where I tried to, yeah. Um, I'm sorry. I've lost my train of thought. Well, so, um, so this is because, yeah. you know, so your, your, so your disability makes it difficult to use the fixed route service. Is that what, is that where you're going with that? Well, oh, no. So I am able to use the regular fixed route service, um, except that, except that the fixed route service doesn't, the fixed route service doesn't always you know, allow you to travel from one stop to, a, to, from any stop to any other stop in a way that's practical. So, so I tried to use, I tried to use the paratransit in order to, to get kind of a direct, a direct link from one place to another, you know, in the system, but, but that the system couldn't really do for me mm-hmm. with the, the regular routes. And I think a lot of, a lot of other people, uh, with disabilities do that too. Um, I mean, in, in principle, it's supposed to be, you know, it's this, this big, you know, wheelchair accessible van that's supposed to be for people who, who physically can't get on a regular, get on a regular bus. Um, yeah, but I, I think mm-hmm. a lot, a lot because of, because the, the fixed route system just doesn't work very well. I think a lot of, a lot of people are, you know, try to use the uh, paratransit to, to make up for that. So you're talking about, I mean, sometimes, you know, the trip might, you know, might require, you know, you might have two buses that run every hour and, you know, there's a long transfer in between and you have to walk, a, you know, a, a bit of a distance and it's up, up a step and around a curb. And especially when you're dealing with snow and ice, um, you know, all these issues, these things that can be daunting for, for those of us without physical disabilities, um, you know, like myself. Um, they, you know, can be completely inaccessible for, for a person with, with, a, you know, I mean, all kinds of, you, know, you can think of all kinds of disabilities that, that can make it difficult. And I, I think, so that's, it's interesting how, you know, we have this service that's supposed to fill in that gap and, and help some of the most vulnerable people in society who are, who are, you know, unable to take, to make use of, or, or to efficiently make use of a, of a service. And, you know, it might require things, like I say, long transfers. I mean, you know, you might have to wait out in the cold, you might have to stand for long periods of time, things that some people are unable to do. And, um, but, but the system, you know, the way it works is as, as I understand it in pretty much every place is that you have to schedule your trip at least a day in advance. And there's a, there's a, a window in which they can pick you up. And so they might show up an hour before the scheduled time and you might miss your appointment. And it just, in general, it seems like it just doesn't work very well. Um, is that, is that your experience with, with the paratransit in, in your area? Yeah. So, so when, when the, the few times that I tried to use it, um, one, yeah, you, you need to, you need to schedule your appointment like a day in advance so you can't use it for any kind of spontaneous trip, but also there's a there's a limit. You can only schedule it, at, you know, at most like a week in advance. So you can't really prepare for for anything important that's you know coming up in the future either. And and uh, the you know there there are a limited number of of vans, and you can't be guaranteed that 
that you'll be able to get one even you know that you'll be able to get one so you can't rely on it for anything important and you can't you know you can't schedule you know regular rides for regular appointments that happen you know every day or or every week or whatever you can't use it to get to a job or get to school because you have to be there at a regular time on a regular basis yeah and they can they can be early they can be late you know uh, well the fixed route buses can do that stuff too but um yeah it's really it's really not practical at all it's really just for people who are absolutely desperate pretty much housebound and just you know every now and then like are able to get out and has it has it always been like this or is is has it improved at all over the years or and and uh do we know if there are people working on trying to improve it uh, I don't know. I've a, I, as a, I've only tried to use it a few times, and that's my only experience with it. Um, and that was quite a few years ago, so I, I don't, I don't know. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when we we try to, I mean, I'm sure there's, there's, I know there's various ways to to work to make it make it better. I mean, it seems like we. It essentially is a shared ride taxi service that you reserve in advance if you if you want to think of it that way i mean you know you're you're covering a bigger region so you, you typically wouldn't take a taxi for more than 10 miles and you know in a place like uh western mass you might be taking a you know you might be taking a, a, a paratransit ride for it might go or a fixed route it might go 30 40 miles um but i i wonder it, it's Whenever I've worked in transit agencies, I've always been in the fixed route side. So I don't really have a ton of experience in paratransit, but one of the things I've heard is that it's it's very expensive to run. And I've heard numbers like, you know, forty to fifty dollars per trip that it's costing the transit agency, you know, per passenger. The passenger is paying two or three dollars and you know, and, and the transit agency is shouldering the other fifty dollars. And I I don't really understand why it's so expensive. Um, is it I mean maybe it's yeah. just because it's such a poor service that it has low utilization rates and you have to pay the driver even though they're not doing much or uh, i'm not i'm not sure entirely so I, sure yeah i've heard that's very expensive i don't know the the numbers but i would speculate it's part because you know the ve- one the vehicles are very expensive the drivers probably need special special training to to deal with people with different disabilities um those are some of my guesses mm-hmm. yeah and i should say that you know uh, being a bus driver myself i mean the the and, and i've seen the paratransit i've never driven paratransit but i've you know i've i've have a little experience with the with the drivers and it's um you know it requires it requires a lot of patience and a lot of skill and you know you're dealing with you know a lot of people who who don't you know like i said cognitive disabilities so they may not understand a lot of the basic things about taking a bus that, you know, we know and, um, you know, people have various, various issues going on. And, um, and so it's very, it's very difficult to, to deal with that. Uh, but I think one of the things that a lot of transit agencies are doing is trying to get more people to use fixed route instead of paratransit. And some of that is, is sort of uh, self-enforcing because, you know, the paratransit service being what it is, uh, if you can use the fixed route, you you will use it in in many cases. Um, but a lot of it's just you know uh, what they call travel training. It's kind of training people to use the fixed route who may maybe haven't used the bus before, and just showing them how it works and uh, getting them the freedom. Because if you can use the fixed route service, then 
it's you know it's more freedom for you. Like you said, you can make spontaneous trips. Um, you can, um, and I mean that's that's the big one. Um, and it's cheaper. And you can move around uh, with with a lot more independence. And so a lot of what a lot of transit agencies are doing is that for anybody who's eligible for paratransit, they make the fixed route free. But there's other things you can do for the fixed route too. Um, one of the things you talked about is trying to improve the fixed route service because in a lot of cases the fixed route service doesn't really work very well uh, for anybody. You know, you get a lot of places. Yeah. Like, I mean, I mean, you look at Western Mass in particular in your area, but I mean, you see this all over the country, where the, you know the biggest issues in transit service outside of the biggest cities uh, is the span of service, you know, the hours of service, and, and the frequency, and the, and the coverage, and, and you get into accessibility. I mean, there's, there's a lot of issues for. Um, Improving the fixed route, and I—I I mean, sometimes it's a little daunting the yeah. where to start. Yeah, and in addition to those problems that you mentioned, um, in in this area, uh, you know, which is not like a, which is not a big city, you know, as as you said, uh, there there are other issues like the fact that, um, you know, the buses are very slow; they don't follow direct routes; they kind of wind back and forth, or, you know, to different destinations um they don't you know they don't connect up very well you know there are these different kind of fragmented regions and it's hard to get from one region to another and you know there there are some routes that only run like twice a day or five times a day you know so you don't want to take the bus if you're going to end up stranded and not be able to get a bus back Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a big okay. thing that I used to see in, in transit planning all the time, especially with the people who, who are involved that, that aren't planners, that don't know transit planning, like uh, the politicians and, and the, you know, the transit CEOs and others. You know, often they, they would be very happy seeing a line on the map. You know, if you look at any transit agency system map, uh, the vast majority of them, it, it, you know, the route that runs twice a day that's a commuter express route to the middle of nowhere, it, it shows up the same with the same thickness and the same color and everything as the route that's you know, every 15 minutes all day. And so a lot yeah. of times they're happy just getting a line on the map, but you have to think a little bit more about the details of it and does, does this actually work for people. Yeah, exactly. So um, one of the one of the things you just touched on there is um, – the you know getting back to fares is that the riders can often uh, you know you can often get stranded um, with it you know I talk about how riders aren't very it can be very confused by by a fare system especially you have different agencies and um, I mean you look at a place like the Bay Area in California where a, a place where people are generally um, very used to transit but it's uh, you know and, and uh, the, the cost of, of driving are, are significant so there's a little bit more of an incentive to use transit but still you have 21 different transit agencies they all have their own fares and um, you know and you can't some places you can use the uh, the, the smart card that's uh, accepted in other places and some places you can't and it's it's very complicated um, but you know you might also have issues where you know if you don't have any you know you don't have any money. What, what if you got your wallet stolen? Or what if, uh, you know, I mean, you could think of any number of things where you just didn't have the money to get home. I thought that was a very interesting point that you raised. Yeah, and I'm, I am I have constant anxiety whenever I travel by any mode about getting stranded. So that's a thing I think about a lot. And But because we have this uh, no-fare system around Amherst, there are a lot of, a lot of students that, that get on a no fare bus and then try to transfer to another bus and don't realize that there's a fare 
for that bus. Um, so, must, so it, yeah, yeah, that must create a lot of conflicts for, for other people. Yeah. 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 That's, um, yeah. So, I mean, you know, we talk about, we talked about proof of payment a little bit. Um, but I, I think, you know, it's, I mean, it's still confusing and it's still a barrier to ridership, but I, I wanted to dig into it, just a couple of the things that you mentioned about it. Um, you know, one of which being the, you mentioned the, the cost of enforcement, which is something that, um, you know, the disadvantages of proof of payment are things that are not often talked about in the transit industry. There's a lot of people that are talking about moving a proof of payment so that you can decrease the dwell time so that you're not sitting at the stop for you know, five minutes and waiting for six light cycles while there's a line of 40 people outside in the rain. You know, but but the, the human element of the of the riders, you know, often often transit agencies think in terms of managing these people that we have to deal with instead of, you know, how do people interact with the system and how does this, you know, as, fit in as a part of their daily lives. And so, you know, things like like the enforcement is a is a big issue. Um, how, you know, we don't know what happens with. So, so let's say you don't pay, you, you didn't, you didn't pay your fare, and you get a citation. Now, what happens with that? Do you, you know, do you go to court? Um, do you even show up in court? What if they give a fake name? Um, well, a police officer can ask for ID if they don't believe you. Um, but there, that's one of the element where bias comes in, and then you're dealing with police, um, which you know a lot of people, especially a lot of neighborhoods that are very transit dependent. Uh, aren't really going to want a lot of police because we see in the news uh, what you know what happens with police involvement, and so a lot of people are very nervous about uh, proof of payment system because they they say, well, you know, now now you get a, a fifty dollars citation and you can't afford it, and all of a sudden it balloons, and now you have a warrant for your arrest, and like the like the Ferguson, um, you know, yeah. what was highlighted in Ferguson, it goes on around the country. Um, I mean, but I think this is yeah, these are serious issues. You know, it's also, it's also might, you know, it's another cost. It, it might be a, a very significant cost. Uh, I, I don't, I don't really know, but it's something that the, the bus company might not, might not even think about because they might not be the ones paying for it, right? It might be something paid for through, you know, by the, the city or whatever, right? And so... So they feel free to, to 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 ring up these costs that everyone else is paying for, and they don't they don't notice it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very interesting, and it's it's uh, you know I've I have a little bit of experience dealing with with this kind of stuff when I uh, when I drove a pedicab in New York City, um, I got twelve tickets I think in about three months, and uh, they were all bogus yeah. tickets. And it was a, there was a situation going on in New York which I, I don't need to get into here. I've talked about in the past where. You know, there was basically there was a lot of um, a lot of shady business going on among pedicab drivers, and you know the police would go after pedicab drivers, and they would give you tickets for all kinds of things. You know, they would give you you know a ticket for no left turn signal, and I'd be like, look, it works, and I'm showing you that it works, and they're like, oh no, you don't have a left turn signal, and you know silly stuff like that. So I'd go to court, and I'd I'd be in the court with you know the community court with the the people who are arrested for drinking in public or you know public urination or something. You know, there's a lot of this is silly stuff yeah. that uh, you know, and this is how people get people get fined and i was lucky that you know the that the judge understood and i guess she was used to seeing this stuff and so you know all the tickets got dismissed and so i was i was lucky in that sense but um you know but if you if that doesn't happen to you i mean this is how people get into the criminal justice system because they get a 50 dollars ticket and they can't pay it and um and they and there's also the the cost like you said is, is the 
you know, maybe the transit agency doesn't bear the cost, but they, they do have to do the enforcement. And there is the issue of how do you do the enforcement? Um, who, who does it? Do you use police? Do you use uh, private security guards? Do you have um, in-house personnel who are specially trained to do this? Um, and in any case, you know, how do you, how do you check randomly? Um, or even if you check everyone in a given car, um, how do you decide whether to give somebody a, a warning or a citation? Um, and you, this was studied in Minneapolis where they, where they use police and they found that, uh, huge rates of, of disparities between, uh, white people and black people in terms of who got citations and who didn't. And, um, and so, I mean, you just can't deny that. Yeah. I'm not surprised. I mean, it just, yeah, it just seems like every 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 kind of system you could possibly put in place to to get fares out of people comes with a whole lot of other problems. And just the easiest way to deal with it is just to not charge fares. Right. Yeah, I would see that because I mean, you know, this happens in in all systems too. I mean, there's there's fare evasion in in both. We, we actually there, there's been some limited studies of proof of payment. Um, there's, I don't, I don't know of any that went into things like enforcement, which is, which is really unfortunate because it's such a big issue. And I think, you know, a lot of the, uh, you know, middle and upper middle class white people that dominate the transit industry management don't probably don't really think of these things. Um, but you know, they did study fare evasion and they found that, you know, the rate varies anywhere from like, you know, five to 15% based on. The, it's like a combination of the what the fine is and what the risk of getting the fine is. You know, it's just like a just like a speeding ticket. It's like the combination of you know if the combination is if it's the right mix of the the fine and the risk of getting the fine, then you're going to drive under the speed limit. You know that kind of thing. And so it's um, and so so they they've, when they studied fare evasion, they found that the, the rates vary. Um, but there is fare evasion in a traditional system with a fare box in front. You know, if a guy walks on and, and doesn't pay, or um, somebody's short, or you know, how does, how does and how does the driver decide who to ask for the fare? So there's th- these issues come come um, with every system, I think. And um, so this is a these are these are good points to be to be talking about, and I'm I'm glad you you raised that. Yeah, thanks. Um, the I listened to the show again this morning to what I what I said again this morning because I it had been a while and I wanted to um, to listen and um, and I did talk about dwell time I guess I didn't make it one of my formal points which is what you pointed out um, but uh, yeah paying at the door can increase the trip time and some in some places it's twenty to thirty percent uh, or even more in in the biggest most congested cities of the of the trip time that is spent just sitting at the stop waiting for people to pay. And, uh, you know, that's just, that just comes full circle because, you know, the more you're, you're doing that, you're paying, you know, your cost, if your operating cost is, you know, generally for a transit agency, it can be somewhere between 80 and $150 an hour. Um, some big cities are higher, uh, the total cost of running the service. Um, and you're paying that. So you're paying $150 an hour to, to, you know, sit and do nothing, yeah. which is just crazy to me. When you're, and you're also, you're also making for a much less useful service because it takes so much longer to get anywhere. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, so I, good... I actually, uh, okay. I, I actually think they should make buses where the whole side of the bus opens up. So everyone can just get on at the same time. I, yeah. I like that. Um, there's, there's been, uh, I've seen in, uh, in Oakland, California, I saw, you know, 40 foot buses with three doors instead of, uh, 
you know, instead of two, like most places have. Um, I think there's been some oh, effort cool. to move in that direction, but yeah, I mean, how do we, how do we I wonder how you physically make that happen, but, uh, but I, I like it. Um, just, just to make it easier to use and to get on. And, and it's, you know, and the bottom line is if we want more people to use public transit, right? Because of all the, all the, the reasons that people, that we want people to, you know, the social and health and economic, et cetera, that we want people to use public transit and never even mind the, the traffic congestion relief that, uh, you know, that we put all these barriers to, to using it. And I just, I still believe, um, I haven't had any, gotten any email from people, uh, disputing what I had to say. Um, so maybe I need to shop it around to the consultant class a little bit more, but, uh, I, I still believe that the only reason we even charge a fare in the first place is because we just always have, and it was privately run. So that's just what they did. And, but if you actually think about it, it just doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's because we just don't, as a society, prioritize it. We don't think of it as a public good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. I mean, just like the parks and you know the fire department, and actually, you know, it's it's sort of a it's actually kind of a Repu- Republican strategy to to start charging for for more and more things now. And so I wonder if you know this is kind of they kind of got a head start here because it was privately owned in the first place and they didn't have to fight this. But it's uh, you know now that they're, they're trying to uh, sell off national park lands and. You know, charge admission for that. There are some places, some places in the country, these uh, supposed libertarian paradises, where you know you uh, have to pay your fee to the fire department, and every few years you see this high-profile case where somebody's house burned down because they didn't pay their you know hundred-dollar a year fee or whatever for the fire department. And uh, you know, yeah, it's so, insane. Yeah. <laughs> so, cool. Well, um, this has been really informative. Uh, anything else that you wanted to add before we wrap up? Um, I can't think of anything but yeah thanks for thanks for asking me about my experience great yeah thanks for doing this and uh, we'll have you we'll have you on some other time uh, i'm sure cool yeah talk to you later all right thanks have a great day you too bye so thanks again to eli for coming on the show and i hope that you got some uh, interesting insight out of that i also received an email from margo um, don't know where this person lives, but uh, understand recently went to Washington, D.C. Um, this person writes, I, I also feel transit needs to be free, and your arguments are clearly stated and compelling. Thanks for taking the time to put your thoughts together and getting it out for us. Uh, thanks, Margo, for writing that. And I also, uh, she wrote in later, I wrote back, um, and she wrote um, later that... Uh, well, we just got back from D.C., so here's an example. We plan to take the train from National Airport to Shady Grove. Um, and those of you not familiar with Washington, D.C., uh, this is me here. Um, the National Airport, uh, also known as Reagan Airport, is um, is very close to downtown. It's on the metro. It's like 10, 15-minute ride to downtown. It's not, not far. Um, and Shady Grove is uh, one of the suburbs in Maryland that's kind of far out. Um, so it's kind of... It's a higher fare to go to Shady Grove because it's farther out, and I believe so is the airport um, because it's the airport. Uh, our family of five bought round-trip tickets totaling $70. Yesterday, that's, that's absurd. Uh, yesterday morning, our flight was so early, at 8.45 a.m., that we couldn't take the train because it starts at 7 a.m. Okay, so this must be, I'm guessing this is a Sunday because I believe Sunday, some of the systems start later. Um, so we had to eat the $35, half the 
round-trip cost, and pay for other transport. Considering how we could have almost rented a car for what we spent on the train, it doesn't make one want to do that again. Uh, fortunately, we all love trains, so it was fun anyway. So this is a good point, Margo, and thanks for sharing that. Um, it's a good argument for free transit and also for attention to the new user experience. Uh, it's something that I've, I've talked about a lot in my time. Um, one of the most annoying things that I've that I hear, the most infuriating things that I've heard in working in transit is um, that, oh, people know how it works. Um, they'll figure it out. That you know, in, in other words, like we don't care about getting new people. Um, and if that's your attitude, really, then uh, eventually uh, your passengers are either going to die or move away because that's just how it works. And uh, so that's um, a really bad attitude. And, um, you know, this is a, a case, you know, in Boston, we're working to get all-night transit. And one of the big reasons, well, one of the big um, destinations at night is, is the airport. You know, you cannot get to a flight before 7 a.m. Uh, in, in Logan Airport in Boston because the subway and the buses don't, the subway doesn't start running until 5. The subway starts at 5.30. Um, you can barely get to the airport at 6. you got to be there an hour before, at least. Um, so you're talking about, you know, anything before 7.30. And uh, half the airport employees are there before then. Um, they have, you know, hundreds of flights before then. It's, uh, you know, it's ridiculous. So, um, and this is an example of, of just, um, so there's two things here. Is the fare. Um, you know, $70, you know, you think of when, when you think of it, of transit cost as, you know, as an individual, it's, you know, it's one, then you compare that to the cost of a car, it, it makes transit look good. But if you, especially if you already have a car and then to look to say, okay, we're going to need to, uh, you know, you spend $70 for your family. Um, I mean, nobody's going to do that. And this is one of the things we dealt with in Boston with the commuter rail, the commuter rail being so expensive. Uh, being over $20 round trip per person. Um, anybody who, yes, it's cheaper than owning a car, but anybody who has a car already is not incentivized to take transit. And if we want people to take transit, we have to uh, address that issue. Um, kind of on the fence of whether there should be fares for regional transit and, uh, you know, like commuter rail, intercity. Um, kind of on the fence. I suppose I could be convinced either way. But, uh, but certainly, you know, I mean, the, the amount of the fares has, has gotten out of control. Um, and this is a good case study. Um, $70. So divide this by, divide 70 divided by five is what? So $12 a person. Um, for, yeah, 13, $14 a person. Um, that's a lot of money, especially now when you're, when you're competing with uh, Uber and Lyft. Um, there, you know, a lot of these, um, yeah, they're more expensive than a, than a subway fare for, you know, for the local zone, like the $2 fare. But, um, you know, once you start thinking about commuter rail and the fact that it's infrequent and it doesn't run very late, um, you know, transit has to do a better job of competing and getting people to use it. And, um, yeah, the other thing is the new user experience. This is, we need to pay a lot better attention and do a much better job at, uh, catering to new users and welcoming new users, both uh, short-term visitors and uh, residents who just may be new to transit. And actually also people who may not necessarily be new to transit, but may be using a particular route for the first time. You know, maybe they're trying to go out to a new area of town, they have some errand that they have to run. Uh, if you don't make the services easy to figure out, easy to use, and uh, comfortable, then 
you know, people aren't going to use that. And then, you know, then they go and they get a car for that once a month that they have to go drive to, uh, you know, somewhere in suburbia. And then, uh, you know, they start driving their car for food shopping and all of a sudden, you know, they're not taking transit at all. So, uh, you know, these, we have to do a much better job of uh, accommodating new users. And as somebody who has traveled a lot, continues to travel and experience new systems, uh, I, I have, I think, a lot to share about uh, how we can do a much better job in the transit industry in terms of uh, making our service attractive and easy to understand and use for new users. So that's that's going to be coming up in the future as soon as I... Uh, get time to record that. Um, if you have thoughts on fare free transit or anything else, please get in touch by emailing feedback at criticaltransit.com. There's also a form on the website that you can fill out in case you don't want to be old fashioned like me, do an email. Um, I must say that, uh, now driving buses and not running a nonprofit anymore, it is nice to sometimes not see my computer for a few days and, Certainly not turn it on and have 100 emails I have to deal with. So uh, maybe I'll see your email sooner. Um, I usually reply in about a week. Um, sometimes it can be up to two weeks. But I do get back to everyone. So um, please send me your thoughts. Or if there's ideas that you have for future topics or guests or anything else, please let me know. And uh, check out my other podcast now. I started a podcast on vegan traveling uh, called the Vegan Travel Podcast. Uh, as many of you know, I'm a longtime vegan. Uh, but it's going to be... I think uh, just about 11 years now I've been doing this, and uh, there's some uh, special things you need to think about when you're uh, traveling on the road, dealing with uh, whether it be social situations or finding food in the middle of nowhere in gas station convenience stores or, or whatever. Uh, it's really it's really not that hard, but there's uh, certain things that uh, I want people to be aware of and be thinking about. So I, I started a podcast on it, and I also talk about other things too, about just traveling in general. I talk about... There is an episode on minimalism and how to downsize. There's an episode on seasonal employment. I talk about food and what I eat on the road. Um, episode one covered that, and episode four was um, went into detail about what I ate for a, uh, a few days in Salt Lake City and on the road in a Greyhound bus. So uh, you know, check that out. I also have uh, I've been try I'm trying to clear the backlog of episodes that I recorded while on the road uh, on my bike tour in uh, Maine and Vermont in September. So I'm trying to clear that out. I just posted one there on criticaltransit.com. And uh, you can find the Vegan Travel Podcast at vegantravelpodcast.com. And you can always email me via the contact form. Uh, it's all kind of one site. And uh, you can also email me, Jeremy, at criticaltransit.com or Jeremy at vegantravelpodcast.com. Whatever works. I'm on Twitter at Critical Transit, and if you look for me on Facebook, you can find me and connect with me there.